Welcome to Seeing Eye to Eye, the show about innovation and integration. Why integration and innovation? Because we believe these are key skills for anyone on a path of continual progress, so you can create and successfully live a bold vision for a more meaningful future. We're your hosts. I'm Ash. And I'm Joya. Join us for conversations that are part entrepreneurial strategy, part philosophical discussion, and part personal development tools. If you are or aspire to be a high-performing and exponentially ambitious entrepreneur, thought leader, or creator, this show is for you. Three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. This is Seeing Eye to Eye the show all about innovation and integration. So this is episode four, which we are calling the financier episode. So this episode is actually part of our whole season long exploration of a project we're calling the 21st century Renaissance human project. So if you haven't heard our first episode where we delve into what this project is all about, you're definitely going to want to go back and check out episode one. But in this episode, we're going to be talking about being a financier. And we do want to point out that it is very different from being a financier. <laughs> yes. That was when we first were trying to come up with a term for uh, our episode on personal finance. Uh, that was all, everything on the first uh, page of Google results was just about this French pastry. Yes, but the pastry <laughs> I wanted to point out is very important because, so you guys probably know that I live in New Jersey, right in the suburbs of New York City. And in New York City, we have the financier patisserie. So, so I, I made sure to do some important research for all mm -hmm. you guys and, and find out about the financier pastry. So just in case you're interested, the financier is a moist almond cake traditionally baked in the shape of a gold bar. And when I went to the, the pastry store, they actually have a little package here. I bought the mini financiers, and they describe even a little bit about the history, which I thought was really interesting. I wanted to okay. share. It says the origin of the financier pastry dates back to the Middle Ages, the sisters Visitandines were restricted from producing the small oval cakes due to their distinct almond flavor, which was too easily mistaken for Catherine de Medici's poison of choice, arsenic. <laughs> in, in 1890, the small cake reappeared in the financial district of Paris, France, where a Parisian pastry chef changed the shape from an oval to a gold brick and renamed it the financier in honor of his posh clientele and so i said i got the little mini financiers but you can even see there there's these miniature gold uh -huh. morsels of goodness <laughs> all right that's pretty interesting history for a pastry mm -hmm. okay but that's not what we want to talk about today uh it, although it does sound delicious I, i'll have to see <laughs> if i can find them here anywhere um but we want to talk more about how to um think about your personal finances in a way to integrate them with kind of your overall flourishing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Sorry, so, you had to swallow. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone who's not watching the video, you don't get to see the beautiful pastries. <laughs> but let's just even start out with the definition of the financier that we came up with for the 21st Century Renaissance Human Project. So the financier, as we're seeing it, this is the role that's all about producing material values to generate income and planning and making investments for a future of greater abundance. So okay. I thought it might even be useful to start out with a definition of wealth, because right. that really is what we're looking at here. We're talking about wealth. So maybe we can start there. Yeah, maybe even so with the dictionary definition? Yeah, you asked me to, to Google a dictionary definition of that real, real quickly. And uh, the definitions that came up, I didn't think were fantastic, but they're maybe kind of a good jumping off point for us. So mm -hmm. uh, the first definition that came up was just an abundance of valuable possessions or money. Um, and then the next couple of definitions, the state of being rich, material prosperity, plentiful supplies of a particular resource as in the country's mineral wealth, or a plentiful supply of a particular desirable thing, as in the tables and maps contain a wealth of information. Um, 
so that that's sort starts to get us into what what we're thinking of but uh i know you have a way of of thinking about this that that maybe ties a little bit more into uh our definition of of this role of the financier that we're talking about here yeah so really i think you're right that the dictionary definition provides a good jumping off point but there are still two points that i would want to talk about in thinking about wealth mm -hmm. so the first point that i would want to make is even stressing this idea of value so the definition itself goes into it's this idea of valuable possessions and valuable material resources but when we're thinking about value there's always the question of the valuer values are always relative to someone who is doing the valuing and i think that's an important thing to think about even as we're thinking about wealth that it always has to be connected to your purpose and what it is that you are trying to achieve out of life. So right. just I wanted to make that one point. And the second point gets into the idea of wealth as an activity. So one of the things I even found interesting about the word wealth, you and I were kind of looking into this when we were looking into the etymology of the word mm -hmm. wealth. And we realized that it goes back to, I think it's Middle English, but it's connected with our, our now even current word in the English language, well. Well and wealth come from the same wheel in, in mm -hmm. older English. And there's this connection between then wealth and wellness. And to me, that even spoke to this idea, because when we think of wellness, we do often think of energy and the activities of of exercise and diet, kind of everything we were talking about in the previous mm -hmm. episode about the athlete, the, the activities that one does to be well. And I think we also want to think about the activities that go into wealth. Right. So the way I like to think about this is sometimes there's a common notion in the culture of the old miser, almost like the old Monopoly character who's just uh -huh. sitting on a stockpile of gold or dollar bills. Or Ebenezer but Scrooge I, or Scrooge McDuck exactly. swimming through his vault of gold, right? <laughs> but I think that takes away from an important part about wealth because if you literally were to just sit on your gold or your bills, you might as well just be sitting on pieces of paper or pieces of metal. That wealth is about this activity of producing and investing. And that that's critical to a good conception of what wealth is. But now right. I know you even had a, a, a whole framework for thinking about wealth that, yeah. that you like to connect with Aristotle. So I, th I thought well, this was brilliant. So. Maybe you want before to take I, us through that. Yeah, before I even get to that, though, I just wanted to make a couple comments on uh, the points you were just making. So the, the point that has to relate to helping you achieve your purposes uh, is kind of, I think, what's captured by the, the economic idea of marginal utility. Um, so it's, yeah, it's uh, if, if something doesn't help you actually achieve a goal, it doesn't, ha it doesn't actually have value to you. So it's like, you know, what's the saying about, you know, um, you know, I can't remember how it goes, but about how water is, you know, like a glass of water isn't valuable to a drowning man or something. Mm -hmm. right? Um, and again, you know, in the phrase marginal utility, it's got the word utility right there. So again, it's for the purpose of acting. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, which kind of brings leads into the way that I like to think about it in this uh, framework of Aristotle's four causes. So for those who aren't familiar with this, uh, the philosopher Aristotle had a theory of causation in which he, he had this framework where he thought of everything happening in terms of four uh, types of causes. So there's what he called the efficient cause, which is, you know, the, uh, the sort of immediate impetus for uh, an action occurring. Then there's the material cause, which is the matter that something is composed of, and that's important in, in how it interacts with other uh, causal factors. Um, and then there's 
the formal cause, which is sort of the organization or the, the shape that that matter takes. And then there's the final cause, which is the purpose uh, that uh, is, is kind of driving or uh, the, the, the activity. Um, so in terms of wealth, I, I kind of think of it as uh, applying energy. So that's the efficient cause to uh, a material. So that's the to, to matter to that's the material cause uh, in order to organize it. So that's the formal cause into a form that uh, serves some purpose. So that's the final cause. And I think even like the the example that Aristotle gives, right? I can't remember if this is actually Aristotle's example because I can't even actually remember off the top of my head where in, in the Aristotelian corpus this is discussed. But but at least in kind of the, the philosophical tradition of how this is generally taught, um, that when Aristotle was discussing the four causes, he gives this example of, of building a house. <laughs> and so you've got, you know, like the, the wood is the material and, and the energy is the, you know, the, the carpenter actually putting the boards together and hammering nails in or whatever. And the formal cause is, you know, the shape of the house that uh, he, he's organizing it into. And the final cause you could think of as like kind of like the blueprints or the architectural plans, right, for the house. Um, and that's, I think, kind of a good example for this discussion as well, because, you know, when you're building a house, that's producing wealth, right? Exactly. Yes, it's perfect. No, and, and I love even just the way of, because it already takes it from that dictionary definition and expands it out into, there's a, essentially a whole cycle of activity that's involved mm -hmm. with wealth and the wealth process. So maybe we can even start to break down the definition that we had for the financier. So we talked about that it's these ideas of producing material values, that it's about planning and making investments and doing so with an abundance mindset. And I thought it might even be useful to even scale this back down to perhaps the specific example of a self-sustaining farm. Because in a later episode that we're getting toward, the statesperson episode, we're going to talk about society and we're going to talk about economic relations broadly. But I think mm -hmm. there's a way in which you can even start to see some of these important principles about managing your finances, even with the very limited example of, for example, a self-sustaining farm. Right. So we want to kind of reduce it back to the individual level and kind of the first principles of production. Right. So, so I mean, I think that is just even the first point to make that that production is an activity. And so, if you're thinking about a self-sustaining farm and the wealth of a self-sustaining farm, the first thing you're thinking about are the productive activities that you would have to do for that farm: the planting of the seeds, the managing of the crops throughout the seasons. If you're growing livestock. This is the wealth that you are producing, but it is a constant daily activity to have those material resources that enable you to survive and thrive. Right. And that, um, you know, even at the level of a self-sustaining farm, though, this is already kind of beyond just like a hunter-gatherer stage if we're thinking about this in terms of sort of the evolution of, of human social structures. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that already does kind of lead us into the next couple of stages of planning and investment because obviously if you're working on a farm you know you can't eat your seed crop you know you have you are working towards the future you're not just going out and satisfying the needs of the moment right exactly so there is definitely this element of of the mental aspect so when we're thinking about wealth we've obviously been thinking about physical production we've been thinking about material values but there is always the the necessary link between the material production and the mental work that is involved in being able to be successful in producing material values. Okay. Um, so how, how does that, uh, so, so it sounds like what you're saying there is that there is kind of this close link between uh, having this sort of abundance, uh, kind of future-oriented mindset, and even the activities of planning and investment that, that then actually kind of bring that 
abundance to pass. So it's, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of. Right. Well, I think this maybe even starts to get into the next point we definitely want to explore, which is this idea of the abundance mindset. So mm -hmm. one point is just that in any kind of material production, that the best material production requires significant, you could call it intellectual work, even in the example of the self-sustaining farm. It's not mm -hmm. just the backbreaking physical labor of hoeing the ground or dealing with the animals. There is the mental work of the planning and thinking about the entire cycle of the year and planning for the years ahead. But then we wanted to also get into this idea of to do this most effectively, most efficiently as well, but most effectively, you want us to have an abundance mindset. And maybe we can even start with, so it was Stephen Covey, I think, who's popularized this concept of the abundance mindset in the current culture. Right. But I know we even each have some thoughts about kind of going from his definition to, to a broader sense of what that means to, to have that abundance perspective. Yeah, so we can kind of start with his definition, though. So he uh, apparently uh, coined or at least popularized this term, the abundance mentality or abundance mindset in uh, the seven habits of highly effective people back in 1989, mm -hmm. um, which I think uh, we've talked about a little bit. Uh, we, I think that's a really fantastic book, so definitely recommend that to people. Um, but in there, so he defined this concept of uh, the abundance mentality or mindset as a concept in which a person believes there are enough resources and successes to share with others. Um, so when we we first uh, were discussing that, to, to me, that strikes me as a little bit too abstract or, or social, maybe. Um, there's something about it that just doesn't, it feels a little bit fuzzy to me, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but but I think kind of the main point that he's getting at there, which I think both of us really agree with and, and is really a key uh, point in terms of this uh, abundance mentality is that uh, values are not zero sum. We, you know, exactly. we don't live in a zero sum world where we're just competing for like limited scarce resources and, you know, once the pie is gone, that's it. Mm -hmm. um. Yeah, and I know Stephen Covey also makes the point that what it is that we ideally ought to be trying to create are always win-win situations. So right. it's not a universe, it's not the zero-sum universe in which there's only so much pie, and if one person gets all the pie, that means everybody else loses. That right. what there is is just ever increasing pie, and what we ought to be doing is exploring win-win relationships. And right. I think this does start to then get into the social aspects. I mean, obviously, right. when Stephen Covey is writing his book, he's he's writing it in terms of thinking about how we are living and organizing ourselves in society. In and maybe I'll and... even give a, in business exactly in our business relationships. And maybe we can even give a little preview to what's coming up in our statesperson episode, because in that episode, I want to explore this idea I have of a model of leadership that I like to call the leaders and exchangers model mm -hmm. of leadership. I always like to refer to this as a no sheep model of leadership, meaning that mm -hmm. I believe every person ought to be a leader and that the way we construct good communities and good societies is when everybody shows up as a leader and then what we are doing essentially is exchanging amongst leaders and so even right. if you are part of a kind of organizational hierarchy where let's say there is a ceo and you are somewhere further down the totem pole you should even be in that position knowing that you personally are on a path to leadership and part of what you're doing is developing leadership skills mm -hmm. and eventually i think everybody should be the CEO of at least some project in their life and show up as a peer, show up as a peer leader, mm -hmm. exchanging with other leaders. Right. And everyone all, is, sorry. Oh yeah, no. And then I was just going to say, and, but this is clearly connected with, I think the idea essentially of how the world works, that the abundance mindset is premised on. 
it, we live in a universe where the nature of wealth is such that it's not that there's just this one pie that everyone is competing for their piece of, but that there is just ever increasing pie and that the best way we go about building more and more wealth for everyone is to go pursue these win-win approach style to relationships. Right. Yeah. And I really like that idea of uh, leaders and exchangers and the, the way you describe it. It's, uh, you know, cause I, I think you're right. Everyone should be CEO of, you know, you know, at least over their own life in a sense. Right. And yes. so it's kind of like, it reminded me of uh, kind of the American founders conception of political organization, where instead of you have a model that's very hierarchical and top down where you have a monarch that is the sovereign and then you have everyone else's sort of the subjects at some level, the sheep, um, the sheep exactly. Um, instead, you know, the, the individual is, is sovereign and, and some of that uh, authority is just delegated to, to leaders to, to hold for a time for certain purposes. Uh, so in a way it's like saying this model you're talking about is like saying people should be sovereign over their economic lives as well as their political lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and then, with the exchangers, you know, to take it back to the idea of the self-sustaining farm and connect it back to this Covey idea, it's, uh, it's like, okay, so yeah, you can grow your crops and, uh, you know, um, raise your livestock and so forth. But, you know, once you get to the point where you've got a community of farmers that, you know, they can specialize in different crops or livestock, or you can have people who are more farmers and you've got the herders and then they can get together and start to trade and, because they're specializing, they can each produce more of the one good than, you know, and, and uh, you know, trade them with each other so, so that the total amount of goods is actually increased. So that's how you're growing the pie, right? Um, did you have anything to add on, on that? Well, maybe we just even then, I know we wanted to talk about, we had talked in previous episodes about Peter Diamandis and his mm-hmm. books, bold and abundance and he talks about even this exponential growth curve when we're thinking about wealth so so i i phrase it in terms of of increasing wealth but i think he even wants to make a stronger point that it's not just increasing but increasing at this exponential rate right so yeah peter diamandis has you know that a book called abundance which is fantastic um that we've mentioned on the show before and he's also got a ted talk about it which uh if you don't want to, you know, commit the time to read the book yet. Uh, definitely check out the TED Talk. Um, but his his friend uh, Ray Kurzweil was the author of uh, "The Singularity Is Near" and "How to Create a Mind." Really brilliant inventor uh, and thinker. He uh, has this idea that I think you know Peter Diamandis has has used as well that it's not just um, a law of increasing returns where uh, you can produce goods and they're increasing at a linear rate, but that that rate of increase is actually accelerating. Uh, so that's what he calls the law of accelerating returns. And so that's where this exponential growth curve comes from. Um, and on that point, I did just want to mention briefly as an aside, uh, I know there are some people who, you know, have seen you know, kind of the famous examples of that are, you know, like Moore's law in, in computation, how computers keep getting faster and better and cheaper and smaller at this accelerating rate, which is has just been, you know, one of the most mind-boggling phenomena of the last half century. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you go and like look at the data on that, it's just mind-blowing. Like the human mind really can't even comprehend it. But, um, well, you know, we can comprehend it in some way, obviously, because <laughs> we're creating it. But it's uh, it's difficult for us to really comprehend uh, how the, the, the scales involved, right, mm-hmm. and and the full yeah impact and everything. But uh, but some people, you know, they'll look at that and they'll say, okay, but that's just computers. Like that doesn't apply to, like I can see how that applies to you know, digital bits of information because the marginal cost of copying that is practically nothing at this point and. Uh, so yeah, obviously we can keep uh, increasing that to these in, these really impressive levels, uh, but that doesn't really apply to like material wealth. And um, you know, it there are certain limits in 
the growth of, of material wealth. But the whole point is that, you know, this increasing information we can use to figure out how to produce material wealth better. And that's what humans are really good at doing is overcoming these limitations, right? Mm -hmm. So if you actually look at the growth curves on, say, agricultural production of food, uh, it's followed the same exponential growth curve for centuries, you know, um, which is why we can now support a population of seven point whatever billion on the planet, which, you know, even a century ago was we were at a small fraction of that, you know, mm -hmm. which is amazing within mm -hmm. a few generations. But uh, anyway, so and, you know, it's it would be an interesting discussion to get into the details of like exactly how and why the exponential growth can occur even with material goods. But that's probably a little bit beyond the scope of, of today's discussion. So we can table that for now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe next, though, I know you even had a little bit of a pushback, though, against the Stephen Covey definition, the extent to which it's it's very social. And maybe you wanted to say something that really highlights focusing on the individual and how this applies to the individual. Yeah, so it just, and I think Covey, I, I can't remember the whole context of that discussion in the book, because it's been a few years since I've read it, but so he may have um, been better, but just like just going on that definition, like I said, it, it feels kind of vague and fuzzy because it is just focused on this idea of, you know, there's this, there's this non-zero sum, you know, increasing amount of wealth that we can then share and distribute among people and without having to just like compete in this cutthroat dog eat dog kind of way. Um, but it doesn't really say anything about where it comes from or, or why. And so that's kind of what we've been talking about with this idea of like production and bringing it back down to the level of the self-sustaining form. And I think it's just kind of important to highlight that because if you just uh, think of something at a very abstract level like that without actually keeping in mind the the uh, sort of concrete uh, phenomena that that abstraction is really supposed to be integrating together. That's what I call the, the fallacy of abstraction as omission, and it can just become um, kind of disconnected from reality and empty <laughs> of meaning. So, so that's just something I, I want to caution against. Can you just say something more about, about what you see that fallacy is? So, you know, gen when, you, when you generalize and form like abstract uh, concepts and ideas, um, what you're really doing is you're uh, subsuming a range of concretes and you're saying, okay, if something falls within this this range, then I'm going to include it under this concept. But mm -hmm. uh, what a lot of people tend to do, this is actually very common, like I see it all over, uh, is to come up with a an abstract idea that is maybe vaguely based on like one concrete instance, but then kind of like drop out all of the concrete instances that it was originally based on. And, and then just kind of run with it in this way that's kind of empty. And it's, this is actually, you know, a, you know, in the history of philosophy, you know, you, you might be familiar with the, the kind of prominent example would probably be John Locke's theory of abstraction, um, which was very explicitly about you, you abstract by omitting the particulars. Mm -hmm. um, so you form the idea of whiteness by removing um, like any particular features of the white things that you might encounter in, in the real world, right? Mm -hmm. Until you're just left with some you know, kind of feature something featureless and, and void of features. Whereas what I'm arguing for is like a, a good generalization doesn't become more empty of detail. It actually includes a greater range of, of, of detail in specific instances. So can you give us an example of that? W were you telling me an example that even applies to entrepreneurs? Sure. Uh, so one place I think it, it kind of comes up a lot is, uh, with entrepreneurs who are trying to figure out how to um, start a business and they say, you know, and they say they're motivated by wanting to change the world. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm motivated by wanting to change right, the world. <laughs> me too. Sure. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing wrong with that per se, but if that's like your primary motivation, that is kind of like this very abstract idea that doesn't really have any content. It's like, well, how do you want to change the world? So your primary motivation should be more about like, 
Well, so what what would you say like your kind of mission driven purposes? I know you've you've talked about this a little bit before. Yeah, I mean, my mission driven purpose is all about creativity and innovation. I want to help people to create success on their own terms. Right. And have a world where more people are empowered to be creators and have that creator mindset and live that creator life. Okay, so that is, you know, hopefully, you know, you will actually have some impact on the world and make some positive changes in the world um, doing that. And that is one way that you can change the world. But to just say, I want to change the world without like being motivated by some specific way in which mm -hmm. you can change the world mm -hmm. uh, is, I think maybe a good example of this uh, idea of uh, the fallacy of abstraction as omission because it's they're they're omitting any particular um concrete uh examples of ways in which you could actually change the world and it's like and to say like i want to change the world like that's not something that really motivates you to like actually take any specific actions that can actually mm -hmm. have that outcome that, that you're supposedly mm -hmm. motivated by so so you really need to have like some idea on a more concrete particular level um, than just like some very abstract uh, idea that really doesn't have any particular content. So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with that. No, I love that. And I think that even takes us now to our next section where we want to talk more about even more practical ideas and practical advice. So we've been talking abstractly about wealth and production and investment and now maybe bringing it into something more concrete and action oriented. Great. Let's do it. So I even, just to jump in, I know I had a point that I wanted to make to even think about practical advice for the whole cycle of production and consumption. Because I know this is just one of the things that irks me, something that I see in the culture that I really want to push back against. A whole approach to consumption and consumerism that we see in the culture and I love to make this analogy, even just bringing it back to the most basic kind of consumption that we experience in human mm -hmm. life, which is the consumption of eating food. And I like to make this analogy that when you hear people perhaps talk about consumer culture, that they have this idea of the consumer, like the consumer is just like this big fat slob who's sitting on the couch eating chips and ice cream and binging on Netflix all day. And the interesting thing is that I think most people do not approach food that way, that even as we discussed in the athlete episode, that people who are trying to make the most of their lives, when we're thinking about how we eat, we think about food in terms of nourishment and energy that we know that to the extent that we are consuming food into our body, the whole point is that the food is supposed to serve as a source of fuel that allows us to have energy and be active and go out and do things in the world. And what I think we need to do is just extend that analogy out and realize that even as we're thinking about consumer culture in terms of the things we buy, that we mm -hmm. ought to be thinking about the things we buy with this more active lifestyle mindset. And the way I like to put this is that we ought to be thinking about the things we buy in terms of tools and fuels. Mm -hmm. And I even like to connect this back to what, what I like to call my two-part formula for happiness. So okay. this was something we talked way back. It could have even been episode zero now, but I just wanted to tie it back so that I have this idea of a two-part formula for happiness, that on mm -hmm. the one hand, it's all about being present in the present moment and enjoying the present. And then on the other hand, having a focus on the future all and right. on growth. And I know, Ash, you made this really good point that there's even a kind of paradox or tension within this, because on the one hand, you want to be satisfied and grateful for what you have in the present. And on the other hand, you want to have a kind of dissatisfaction that's really pushing you to grow and improve in the future. And that it's all about right. integrating both of these elements. So I just wanted to connect this now back to thinking about the whole production consumption cycle and say that when we're thinking about the consumption aspect, of this cycle that we ought to be thinking about it in terms of 
tools and fuels so that when we're thinking about the things we buy and the extent to which they are bringing happiness into our lives, we want to think about, is this fueling my present happiness? So maybe even something like my, my pastries, right? Here's right. something that I bought, but that's leading to a certain present happiness, experience of joy in right. the present. But then I also want to think about even just in terms of the other food that I buy. So I bought these pastries, but I also brought things, bought things like Greek yogurt and kale and other mm -hmm. healthy foods that will fuel my body for the future. And then yeah. it's just even in terms of other things that I buy. So for example, when I buy a smartphone, I'm thinking about it in terms of the way it'll bring happiness to my present, like connecting with my friends over Skype. And then the ways it, as it is a tool and fuel for my future growth and happiness. For example, right. in building my business and doing this podcast. So I think even just having this framework of consumption as tools and fuels for the two-part formula for happiness, for right. how is it fueling my present day happiness and fueling my future growth. And that's a much better way of thinking about consumption and not just stockpiling stuff like right. the fat blob on the couch that's just eating chips all day. Yeah, yeah. And that, that reminds me a little bit of um, one uh, kind of financial guru that whose book I actually really liked. Uh, is a guy named Ramit Sethi. He wrote a book mm -hmm. called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And uh, in there he makes the point that, you know, like a lot of other uh, financial advice that you get, you know, will be a, really geared towards – telling you how to cut back on your consumption and be like, you know, you know, don't buy that $2 coffee or probably nowadays $4 at <laughs> Starbucks or whatever every day. Right. Um, but you know, kind of Ramit's point is, is like, you know, if that's what makes you happy, you should absolutely buy that coffee or even like bigger kind of things that people would look at as splurges like flying first class or something like that. That might be worth it depending on, on, you know, your circumstances and your, your values. Um, but he says, you know, that's maybe not even the best framework for looking at how to, you know, organize your financial life and, and get on a path towards, uh, wealth and abundance, because there's a limit to how much you can cut your consumption. Um, uh, you know, there's theoretically a limit to how much you can increase your production too, but we don't even, you know, nobody's really approached that limit yet. So if you really want to get on a path to, to financial well-being, that's probably where you should focus more of your energy is on how to increase your income and, and organize the productive uh, aspect of your financial life. So I know you had some, some thoughts on, on that as well on the productive end. Yeah. I mean, and, and this already, I think makes the link between even the productive end and what we wanted to say about practical investment advice advice. So mm -hmm. in a previous episode, I had introduced the idea of multiple streams of value as a, a further broadening of the idea that's already in the culture of multiple streams of income. But I did want to make a point in this episode to even just focus on the specific example of multiple streams of income and recommend that and explore that as something that everyone should be pursuing in their lives. So. I know most entrepreneurs already have the mindset of thinking about how can I create multiple streams of income? And that is something that I think as human beings, we all ought, ought to start thinking about ways that we can start producing now in the moment to even set up passive streams of income that can be fueling our futures. Right. Um... Yeah. So, so, and, and to do these, set up these passive streams of income, like, could you want to can say a little bit more about what, what that would consist of or how to go about that? Right. Well, I mean, I think just to make this point that again, this is the way in which production and investment now start to intersect and integrate because we want to think about the productive activity that we are doing in the present with this investment mindset. So 
So for a very specific example for me, one of the things that I'm working on right now is putting together an online course. So that's taking a lot of work and effort right now. But once it's done and it's out there in the world, it can hopefully be a passive source of income for me. Um, also, similarly, one of my future goals is to write a book. And that's perhaps a very good traditional example of you might put a lot of time up front right now into writing your book. But then that book ideally will hopefully be published for years and years and years and can be adding to your income stream over time. Right. And this is kind of as against the more traditional work model where you just go punch a clock and you're being paid for your time while you're there. But that's not compounding it as into the future going forward when you're not actually on the clock, right? Exactly. Um, but maybe okay. we can start getting into some more of these uh, advice points about practical advice for investments. I know one of the things you and I were even talking about was even this idea of making calculated risks mm -hmm. in terms of investments. And I think this is just another example of integration because on the one hand, you want to be risky in a kind of aggressive way. And uh -huh. then on the other hand, you also <laughs> you want though? to have a certain measure of security and calculation. So th there's the, the integration of calculation and risk yeah, coming together. I, yeah, so I was kind of pushing back when you were talking about, you know, this more aggressive risk taking. Um, <laughs> because, you know, like, it, it's interesting when you, when you uh, go and talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who you would think might be the most uh, pe risk comfortable people, you know, the, or the least risk averse people, um, a lot of them are actually the most risk averse. And mm -hmm. the, the way that they become successful, like, you know, if you read or listen to interviews with, you know, Richard Branson or people like that, you know, they'll talk a lot about how a lot of what they did was figuring out ways to to eliminate or at least kind of mitigate and minimize uh, the risks that they took to, to ensure that whatever uh, investments opportunities they were pursuing, that they would get some return out of. Um, and this, you know, it kind of reminded me of Scott Adams. He had a, a mm -hmm. book called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. Mm -hmm. and, and that was his point. And that was, you know, like if you part, partly had to do with what, what you were talking about with these uh, multiple streams of income and multiple streams of value, which is sort of diversifying your uh, investment efforts in, in these various realms so that uh, you have a better chance of, of you know, getting uh, overall returns from, from some of them, um, even if, if not all of them work out. But, but also it was, it was about, you know, like structuring your, uh, your ventures and the, the opportunities that you pursue in such a way that even if like the particular end that you're pursuing doesn't materialize, uh, you're still better off than you would have been if you hadn't pursued that. So because mm -hmm. whether it's because you learned something that then you can yep. then go apply uh, to some other opportunity in the future. Um, so it's kind of like baking plan B into plan A, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. That's great. I do though just want to make a push for the idea of risk, because I totally hear what you're saying, and I absolutely agree that you want to take calculated risks, but you do want to take risks. And that's an important yeah. point to make, because there are just so many people in our culture, in our society, who stay stuck within their comfort zones. Yeah. I think one of even the points we're trying to make with the 21st century Renaissance Human Project is that even our old ideas and models of security no longer makes sense. So if you were someone who was clinging to the traditional job path as a way of security, that that doesn't even make sense anymore. And if you want to thrive, you ought to embrace this more risky lifestyle of yeah. being an entrepreneur. And yes, you should do what Ash says and approach the risk with calculation, but there still is an element of risk there. And, yeah. and that's important. No, I think you're absolutely right because, you know, in a sense, growth and change are, are almost synonymous with discomfort in some way, you know? Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's exploring the it's, unknown and the unknown always right. has an element of risk. Yeah, it's uh, I, I can't remember if I've talked about this on the show before, but it's probably something that will come up repeatedly. Um, there's an idea from the, uh, the serenity prayer 
mm-hmm. which most people are kind of familiar with the, the first few lines of it. Uh, but it actually goes on beyond that. And he says something uh, about in kind of the second stanza or whatever you would call it, uh, where he, he talks about living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time and accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. And I kind of paraphrase that in my own mind when I meditate on the serenity prayer as uh, embracing adversity as a pathway to progress. Mm-hmm. Um so, so yeah, that's, I guess there is some risk involved in that, but definitely you don't want to take unnecessary risks that uh, are going to leave you worse off than you were, hopefully. <laughs> it's all about the integration, I think. Right. So maybe this even leads us into some more practical investment advice. So for the non-professional investors, I know you even had some thoughts you wanted to share about this. Yeah, so I, I did, you know, we are obviously talking kind of mostly about general principles here, and this is still going to be general principles, but, you know, a little bit more on the practical level in terms of talking specifically about, um, if, you know, investing in, in the, like a stock market or, uh, but actually even, I, I do want to kind of back up and make a more general point about that mm-hmm. <laughs> first, which maybe would have gone better when back when we were talking about, um, you know, the abundance mindset is rec- this recognition that wealth is not some zero sum game um, because the stock market, you know, like exchange markets in general are kind of typically viewed as like the prototypical examples of zero sum games, mm-hmm. uh, particularly at the level of an individual exchange, because the idea is, you know, if one person sells a stock and another person buys a stock, one of them is right and the other one is wrong and one of them is going to win and one of them is going to lose because that stock is either going to go up or down, right? Um, and I think that's just the completely wrong way to think about it. And I think this is actually kind of like kind of blowing up that myth is, is a really good way of emphasizing this point that wealth is not zero sum because, mm-hmm. you know, even in a stock market, you know, a lot of it depends on timing. Like one person may be getting rid of some uh, stocks that may continue to go up even after they get rid of them, but that does not necessarily mean that they're losing in that transaction because they can then turn around and take the money that they gained from selling that stock and do something else with it that serves their values better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just in general, like if it were true that the stock market was a zero-sum game, like it wouldn't work at all. It would exactly. be a, a total Ponzi scheme, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is not the case um, because it actually represents you know real economic growth and, and uh, you know, investment in, in businesses who are actually, you know, creating real value. So anyway, I just wanted to make that that kind of theoretical point. But in terms of, of just practical investment advice for, you know, those of us who are not professional investors, you know, these days, I think that the general advice that even the professional investors, like people like Warren Buffett or Ray Dalio or, or these people typically agree on is you're just going to want to put most of your money into like an index fund or, even what I can't remember the general term for, but like as a federal government employee, what they call a life cycle fund, which is a sort of even more abstract sort of index fund that uh, automatically uh, readjusts your uh, portfolio over time as you approach retirement age to uh, reflect your, you know, risk profile and things like that. But mm-hmm. um, but the, the the general point is just most people cannot beat the market by trying to time it and pick stocks individually, <laughs> um, <laughs> including a lot of professional investors. So, I mean, like uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb in Fooled by Randomness has actually argued that basically nobody can do it because it's so complex. Uh, I think he's overstating the case a little bit. I think people like Warren Buffett, you know, pretty clearly uh, aren't just lucky. Nassim Taleb would argue that they are just like extreme outliers that are extremely mm-hmm. lucky, but mm-hmm. uh, I think that's not true. But uh, but still, the point is like for most of us, most of us aren't Warren Buffett either way. So yeah. <laughs> uh, you're probably just wanna gonna stick most of your, your investment portfolio into index funds that are gonna hopefully track the market and uh, do at least as well as, as the market. But uh, for those of you, you know, who do want to dabble a little bit more in picking individual stocks, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't do that with like a substantial amount of your investment portfolio, but, you know, say maybe 10% of the money that you want to invest, you know, that could be more or less, again, depending on your particular appetite for risk and <laughs> things like that. 
but uh, the, the I know you, you had some ideas even from your your personal experience that you wanted to share sure, and your yeah. own way of thinking about this. Well, yeah. So, like the kind of the two main points that I would say is just again, you're not a professional. You're not digging into you know the balance sheets of these businesses necessarily and all of this kind of stuff. So, but just from what you can glean from the headlines, if you're going to try and pick individual stocks, first of all, I would say you want to make sure that, you know, they are for organizations that create substantial long-term value. And, and secondly, that they have a sustainable business model for economically capturing some of that value. Um, and so, you know, for example, like, I've been an uh, Amazon customer since they only sold books back in like 96, 97, right? And, um, you know, and I've been saying for many years, like, man, I really should invest in them because like, this is a company that I know creates a huge amount of value and has like a great business model. And uh, if I had invested at them when they went public or even, you know, back in like 2008 when, you know, their shares were kind of low again during the recession and stuff, I would have made a lot of money. Um, <laughs> or again... Mm -hmm. Like with uh, with Disney, when when the Marvel Cinematic Universe movie started coming out, like I, I told people, I was like, they are going to do extremely well with this. They're going to be like mm -hmm. breaking all kinds of records because they're kind of doing what you know Warner Brothers did with the Harry Potter movies, and they're taking it to another level. You know, it's mm -hmm. going to be huge. And if I had invested in Disney, like I would have <laughs> been very you know better off today, um, because you know these are very clear examples that pass both of those uh, those standards that I that I mentioned. Um, it's, it's almost taking what what are the lessons that you learn in hindsight? And I, I love these points that you're making that, that you want to think about these two points about the substantial long term value and and the importance of having a sustainable business model that backs it up. Right. And so, you know, and if you do put some of your because, you know, some of these companies like Amazon and Disney, like these kind of investments might seem in retrospect like, oh, well, that's obvious, you know. And, you know, maybe it wasn't so obvious at the time, but at least nowadays, you know, like those companies are going to be pretty well represented in your index funds. So, uh, you you know, that's not necessarily like a huge tip to say, go buy Amazon stock or something. Right. Um, but, you know, the, to take kind of like a more current example, just like in the last month, you know, say Uber has uh, recently um, had their IPO. And that is a company that I think is not so clear that it actually passes both of these tests. Like you could okay. say, uh, like it's, they are creating like a substantial value potentially, you know, like this, this ride sharing uh, model, I think is not clearly not viable, but like the way that they've gone about it and their their business model, I think is is a little bit more dicey. So like that's one where I and again like I'm not a financial advisor, if, you know I'm a registered fiduciary or anything like that. So definitely don't necessarily take my advice of what to invest in or not invest in. Like do this in a little bit of research and make your own decisions, but like. I would not necessarily recommend investing in Uber, but as I said, like the general model I think is not bad. So I think if, you know, Uber doesn't turn out to have a sustainable business model and they end up tanking, like I think a lot of that investment money might go to say their competitor, their main main competitor Lyft. So I think that would potentially be a better long-term investment. But again, that's, you know, I don't have the benefit of hindsight on this one. So that's, <laughs> uh, that remains to be seen how that plays out. And, and Uber could, you know, do some interesting things that I am not anticipating. Mm -hmm. So that remains and, to be seen. Yeah, and we definitely want to hear all of your thoughts in the community. So definitely come in our Facebook group and chime in and let us know your <laughs> thoughts about, yeah. about all these different companies. Yeah. yeah, and I could you know I could say more about the issues I have with Uber and stuff, but mm -hmm. that's, yeah, that's maybe a discussion for later. But definitely <laughs> I would at least say, if you are, if you do want to make some of your own investment decisions like that, instead of just putting everything in an index fund, uh, don't watch the market and sell at the first sign of a dip, you know, invest for the long term. And this, you know, this is why it's an investment. You, you should pick, and this is why you should pick things with long-term growth potential. Uh, because, you know, people just kind of psychologically have this innate tendency to do the exact opposite of what you should do when you're investing in an exchange market like this, uh, and buy high and sell low. And, you know, of course, like the whole essence of being a successful investor is to 
buy low, uh, buy low and sell high, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like you know, it's just the tendency is if everybody else is is buying and the prices going up, you want to keep buying, and then as soon as the market turns, people start unloading, and that is actually not a great long-term strategy. Um, <laughs> and you know, and this is probably why the market has you know bigger peaks and troughs than it otherwise might because of this. Uh, you know, psychological tendency that people have. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to counteract this tendency, so one piece of advice that I got from uh, the book that I'm going to discuss and when we get to the recommended resources here in a minute. Um, I guess maybe we're making that transition right yeah, now. Maybe yeah. you can tell us what, what your recommended resource is and, and this okay, important yeah. idea that you pulled from it. So, and so the you're further that, thinking on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The book that I was going to recommend for our recommended resources today is is the book that actually kind of prompted me to ask you uh, whether we should include personal finance as, as one of these aspects of a well-rounded life in the in the 21st century Renaissance human project that we wanted to discuss. Uh, and that was uh, Tony Robbins' Unshakable, Your Financial Freedom Playbook. And this is kind of, I believe, his most recent book. It is actually co-written uh, by Tony Robbins and, and Peter Malouk, who is an investment uh, financial advisor that he works with. And one of the recommendations that they made that I thought was actually pretty helpful, this is getting a little bit more into really practical advice, is to counteract this tendency to buy high and sell low, is um, to rebalance your portfolio by reallocating from bonds to stocks during market corrections. So, you know, if you've invested in index funds, you know, you've got like a certain amount in stocks and a certain amount in bonds, and, you know, and there's different categories of each of those. Um, but typically, you know, these are not just, you know, independent of each other, but tend to be actually inversely correlated so that like when the stock market is going down, the bond market tends to go up. Uh, and so when that happens, your your uh, allocations tend to get a little bit unbalanced and you end up as as your stocks go down, um, the bonds go up and you end up having more bonds in your portfolio relative to stocks than what you kind of had initially intended. Uh, So they said, if you make those reallocations during periodic uh, stock market corrections, um, what you're actually doing is you're selling the, you know, extra bonds that you've, you know, the extra value of the bonds that you've gotten during that market correction and using that to buy more stock. So you're actually uh, doing, you know, exactly what you should be doing and, and buying low when, when the stock market is, is in low during the, the correction uh, so that you don't sell when it's low. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and the nice thing about this is because, you know, there the, there is some regularity to these stock market cycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can do this on, on a pretty regular basis. So, uh, the actual definition of a market correction is when there's a decline of 10% or greater in the price of uh, security from its most recent peak, and so that applies at you know these various levels from a individual stocks up to you know these broad index funds, or to the you know mar- market generally. Um, and these kind of broad market corrections. Uh, happen um, on average about you know once a year or so, and then they last for anywhere from from days to to weeks or months. Um, but when there's you know when when the correction is is deeper and longer, when you get to like a twenty percent decline from the recent peak that lasts for months or years, that's when you get into like more kind of bear market recession depression kind of situations. Um, but you know if you're investing in the long term. You know, all of these are just kind of blips along the way, or I think uh, one I, one way I, I saw it put by somebody is like, I can't remember if this is Warren Buffett, but he like use those as like potholes along the road mm-hmm. <laughs> or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, the idea is, is if you just wait for those periodic market corrections and wait for the, the market to actually go down a certain amount, and then you need to reallocate anyway, uh, you're actually, you have a system that, kind of automatically counteracts that natural tendency to uh, buy high and sell low and, and do the opposite. And so I thought that was a really good suggestion. And I just, yeah. uh, the, I would just take it even one step further, which is 
um, you know, if you want to have a system for regularly increasing your contributions. So like, you know, some people will say if, if you, you know, have a regular kind of corporate job and you get a paycheck or whatever salary to uh, increase your contributions whenever you get a raise. And uh, that's fine as far as it goes, because then you've at least got a system to keep increasing your contributions mm-hmm. um, on, a, on a regular basis, hopefully, if you get regular raises. <laughs> but um, to get kind of the most out of those increases in contributions, uh, I think t- kind of tying that to those uh, cyclical market adjustments will, you know, to maximize the growth of those new contributions actually makes a lot of sense as well. But, you know, if you are increasing them pretty regularly, like at least, you know, annually, that that will be you know, fairly marginal in the long run. So. No, that's great. Uh, yeah, so that, and, and so, yeah, that was my recommendation. Mm-hmm. If you want more detail on, on those and other, some more really good advice, there is, uh, you know, Tony Robbins does, some people, you know, have, you can take him or leave him, you know, it's, he's, uh, he does a little bit of kind of like the, the self-promotional stuff, which, mm-hmm. uh, People have a love relationship with Tony Robbins. <laughs> right. But like if you get through that, and there is there is a fair amount of that kind of like early in the book. But if you get through that, there is actually a lot of substance um, to a lot of his stuff, including this book, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think he actually has a lot of good advice. Um, and that was just kind of like one example of, of uh, advice that you can get from him in that book. So I would definitely recommend that one. I love that. Great. Mm-hmm. So, so what did you have? So this week, I even wanted to thank you because you were the one who even put me onto this. So one of the things we were talking about was Ray Dalio and his book, which I think has become a a kind of almost instant classic, the principles book based on his success running his hedge fund. It's a really, really wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. But what you turned me on to, which is even better, is Mm -hmm. the new principles app. So what he did with his team was take the text of that book but then he also incorporated videos. So it's a real multimedia experience. There's all these cute cartoons. There's even a a kind of coaching section, which obviously speaks to me, Hmm. where you can even think about the the principles that he's presenting and how they actually work in your specific life and even come up with your own principles for directing your own life. So the book is great, but the multimedia experience you get with the app just takes it to a whole new level. And really, I think this really ought to be the future of books in the 21st century. We have all this multimedia technology, so I'm hoping it's just even a trend that we see more books that incorporate all of these different interactive and Hmm. multimedia elements so that you just get that much greater of a rich experience. That's really interesting. Uh, Yeah, so I mentioned the app to you because I saw that he had done it, but I actually haven't tried it myself yet. So. I, I thought um, you were telling me about it because you had seen it. It's great. No. You definitely have to go check it out. Yeah, that sounds really interesting because I was just actually, I was wondering the other day, I like what you said about, you know, integrating these different multimedia things with uh, with books. And I think that is kind of the way we're going with, you know, digital, mm-hmm. you know, e-readers and things that that will kind of make that sort of thing possible going forward. But mm-hmm. but I was kind I of wondering the other day. like whole interactive element. So, for example, uh-huh. he has this concept of, Um, like triangulating where if you have a certain idea about something you want to triangulate with other people who may disagree and there's ways even in the app that you can get into conversation with other people so it becomes a truly interactive experience around the book it's great that really does sound awesome yeah I was just wondering the other day like even with something like Wikipedia or something it's like where you've got even an encyclopedia in a digital format you know and they incorporate pictures and things like that but you'd think there'd be you know more videos or things like that (laughs) And, you know, probably the future of Wikipedia, I'm sure. I don't know. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, so that sounds great. I definitely need to check that out as well. Um, yeah. And do you want to talk about, so that wraps up for today. Do you want to talk about what we're going to discuss next week? Yes. Yeah, so in our next episode, it's the episode that's going to be all about relationships. And we still don't think I have a good term for this episode. So it's just provisionally called the relationship maker episode, but still looking, well, hopefully we'll get some is there, uh, is there triangulation there a French pastry here. we can name it out of? Name <laughs> exactly. Uh, I wonder if the French have a pastry for this one. <clears throat> um, but definitely tune in next week, Thursday for the episode all about relationships. But let's talk about then even what the weekly challenge will be for this week in this episode. Sure. You had yeah, an so... idea for this one. Did you want to suggest what it is? 
Uh, well, you know, people could just, uh, you know, follow some of the specific advice that, that we just talked about. And uh, mm -hmm. if you, you know, like increase your uh, investment to your, your personal investment account or, or your retirement uh, account through your employer. Um, and if you, you know, uh, follow one of those pieces of advice that we gave, you know, reallocating, rebalancing your portfolio when there's a market correction or, um, you know, figuring out just increasing your contribution. Um, you know, the most the important thing is just to start now. Um, you know, don't wait for the next market correction to get started. You know, like going forward, you can maybe mm -hmm. time it a little bit that way. But the most important thing is just to get started as soon as possible because because of compound growth, you know, like it, that can add up to a lot of money uh, in the future, depending on, you know, how long you're investing for. So, yeah, so I think that takes us to what the challenge is. So the challenge is to make mm -hmm. a monetary investment in your future wealth. And it's all about building the habit of the investment mindset. So we want you to go out there, make some kind of monetary investment and tell us about your experience with yeah. it over the week. So, yeah. So you can, you know, do one of the things that we recommended, or you can do something different and let us know, you know, what your strategy was and, and how it works. If, uh, if you, you know, I guess we won't have time to see the, 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 uh, the long-term <laughs> results of your investment, but well, just let us know. Right. Let us know what, what you do uh, by next Wednesday night at 11.59 Pacific Standard Time. Exactly. And then what will the, the winner of the, the drawing for people who participate in that receive? Yeah. So one random lucky winner is just going to win a deep coaching session with me. And we can talk about the financier aspect of your life or, or any aspect of, of coaching that you may need where you're at. Awesome. Sounds great. Uh, okay, so thanks again. I think this was a good discussion. Really yeah. enjoyed no, it. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm excited to see all the wealth that everybody in this community is going to start building. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. All right. Yeah. I'll talk to you next week. Yep. See you next time. Bye for Bye. now. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Seeing Eye to Eye. You can find and subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, or via RSS. If you found value in this show, we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes or tell a friend who might be interested. Don't forget, you can also join the Seeing Eye to Eye podcast Facebook group to participate in the weekly challenge, ask questions, and add to our growing conversation. See you next time. Ask me why.